Well, good morning once again. My name is Jacob Smith. I'm the teaching pastor here at Southwood, uh, and I want to welcome you to Grace. If you are new here, uh, you are joining us right about halfway through our year-long study of the book of Romans. Uh, We are in chapter 10 this morning. If you have your Bible, I'd encourage you to turn to Romans chapter 10. We're going to be in the entire chapter this morning. And this is just another stop along the way of our, you know, beginning in the fall, going through all the way up until Easter, of looking at this letter that was inspired by the Holy Spirit, written by the Apostle Paul, and sent to the early believers in the city of Rome. And Paul was writing to them this letter. He was writing to people he'd never met. He was writing to churches that he did not help form. But he's writing to people that he knows are in a pivotal location, people who have such incredible potential to take the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ, across the world, right? Rome was the seat of the Roman Empire. It was really the seat of basically the, the greatest empire the world had at that time. And so these people were, were positioned, they were primed to take this good news to everyone. And so Paul wanted to make sure over the course of this letter, what we see time and time again is this repeated theme of why the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ, why this gospel is so important incredible. Like, what does this gospel accomplish? And what we'll see in Romans 10 this morning is that the gospel is good news. It is great news because it is for all people, because it is God's offering, his gift of salvation to anyone, to everyone who believes, who believes in the name of Jesus Christ. This is a gift of the Lord. It is by his grace through our faith and the work of Jesus Christ that we are saved. And yet what's difficult for us is that as people, there is a part of us deep down, a little broken part of us that is guarded against grace. There's a part of us that doesn't always want to accept help. There's a part of us that doesn't always want to, want to admit our failure, doesn't want to admit our fault, our inability. And we see this not even just as adults, but this is something that starts really early in life. Even as children, as we'll see here, there there is this part of us that is just resistant towards outside help that we see in this girl's life. Can I help? You want me to help, Rose? No. Thank you. No, thank you. What do you want me to do? Worry about yourself. <laughs> Worry about yourself. <laughs> I'll do this one, so I'm gonna do that. You drive! <laughs> Worry about yourself! Go drive! Sometimes that's just the state of, even if we don't say it, sometimes when someone's offering us a little bit of help, maybe it's at work, maybe it's at home, maybe it's with parenting, maybe it's with dealing with a tough relationship. Sometimes there's a part of us that's just like, worry about yourself, right? Like we just don't, we don't need it. But the good news of the gospel is that God's grace is in fact needed. It is necessary for all people and it is offered to all people. This is the grace of God. This is the amazing truth of our gospel, that God says that he loves the entire world, that he so loved the world that he sent his son, Jesus Christ, 
to live the perfect life that we could not live, to die the death that we deserve because of our sin. And yet he rose on the third day to prove his power and authority over sin, over death, over these enemies that held us captive. And so God says, if you call on his name, anyone who believes, anyone who calls on his name is free from condemnation, is free from shame, is free from guilt. You are forgiven and you are reconciled, restored in right relationship with the God of the universe who made you, who loves you. God's grace is for everyone. And yet even as I say that, even as some of us have accepted this grace, some of us have believed in the name of Jesus Christ and we are secure in our Father's hands and nothing will snatch us away. Nothing can separate us from the love of God in Jesus Christ, right? That's Romans 8. And yet even though some of us have believed, have trusted, there are others who have not. There are many who have not. And this is the reality that Paul is grappling with in Romans 10. Specifically, he's going to be speaking about the nation of Israel, the descendants of Abraham. We talked about this a bit in Romans 9. It's his focus in chapter 9 and chapter 10. In fact, it's going to be his focus next week in chapter 11. But as Paul talks about the nation of Israel, it's not just something that's exclusive to Israel. It's not that Israel is the only group of people, that these, these Jews, these descendants of Abraham were the only people who had rejected the Messiah, who had rejected Christ. Not at all, right? Far from it. There are, in fact, people, maybe in our families, in our workplaces, in our classrooms, in our friend groups, who, who simply cannot find themselves or cannot bring themselves to trust in the name of Jesus. Maybe it's out of ignorance. Maybe it's out of belligerence. But what is our role? What is our role as people saved by grace through faith in Jesus Christ? That's what Paul is going to address in Romans chapter 10. So he's going to begin speaking about the rejection that Israel had, that the rejection of Israel to Jesus Christ that they rejected him as the Messiah. He's gonna speak about then the response of people that have been saved by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. And what we're gonna see at the end of this chapter is what is the result, right? God has provided this grace. He has provided a mission and he has promised a result that Paul's going to land in at the very end of this chapter. So if you read with me in chapter 10, we're starting in verse one. And Paul says this, he's addressing again, believers. He says, brothers and sisters, right? Brothers and sisters in Christ. My heart's desire and my prayer to God on behalf of my fellow Israelites is for their salvation. For I can testify that they are zealous for God, but their zeal is not in line with the truth. And so here, Paul is building upon the argument he began in Romans chapter nine, where he talked about how Israel had rejected Christ, that it was so tragic because they had been given all these privileges and all these benefits. They had the patriarchs and they had the law and they had the prophets. And yet even they had rejected Jesus Christ. So here Paul's just continuing in this same idea. And he's saying, it is my heart's desire and my prayer to God that they would in fact come to salvation. And the good news is that some did in fact believe that some Israelites, some descendants of Abraham, they did in fact believe in Christ, right? Paul is one of them. Paul is the, the Jew among Jews. He, had, he was super Hebrew. And he 
came to the realization through a, this, this dramatic moment on the road to Damascus, Jesus appeared to him and says, you've been hurting me, you've been, you've been working against me, and Paul repents, he believes that Jesus is in fact Lord. And whereas Paul had been zealous to persecute and to eradicate the sect of Christianity, Paul then believed and he became a church planter, right? So he knows, he says, it is possible, it is within the power of God to bring these Israelites, my brothers, my sisters, my, my cousins, my aunts, my uncles, my classmates. He says, I know that it is in the Lord's power to bring them to salvation, to bring them to faith. So, so that's my desire, that's my heart's desire. That's my prayer to the Lord, right? Which just as an aside, I, I was just so struck reading this this week that, that Paul's heart's desire and his prayer to God is in fact one and the same, that it's aligned. And, and maybe sometimes, maybe today, the, the, the takeaway for us is simply to remember that, that our heart's desire should in fact be also our prayer. We should be praying to the Lord that he would change this life, that he would resolve this conflict, that he would move in a mighty way, that his will would be done. Paul says, my heart's desire and my prayer to God are one and the same, that Israel would come to salvation, that these, these people that I grew up with, these people I know and love, that they would come to faith. Because I can testify that they're zealous for God. Right? He says, they, 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 they're trying, like they're, they're doing what they can to try to reach the Lord, but their zeal is not in line with the truth. Boy, that'll preach, right? We know those people. We've all got that cousin who's very zealous and so wrong, right? And so Paul says, we, I want them. I, I pray that God would bring them to faith. They're zealous, but they're so misguided. And he explains their, why they're so wrong, why they're unaligned with the truth. Verse three says that for ignoring the righteousness that comes from God and seeking instead to establish their own righteousness, they did not submit to God's righteousness. It says this is the problem. This is where they've missed the mark. They have ignored the rightness, the right standing, the relationship that God offers, right? The righteousness that comes from God through Jesus Christ. Paul talked about this way back starting in chapter three, that the righteousness of God is revealed through Jesus Christ, that even though his wrath is deserved by all of humanity. His wrath is revealed in, in even just nature. He says that his righteousness is revealed through Jesus Christ. But Paul says that these people, that they have ignored that righteousness and they have sought instead to establish their own righteousness. They have convinced themselves that they can earn their way to God, that they can be good enough or faithful enough, smart enough, prestigious enough to reach the Lord. Right? This is what Jesus battled against over and over again in his ministry to the Jewish population during his day. Right? This is why he had all these confrontations with the Pharisees, with the religious leaders of that time. Because he was, he was telling them time and time and time again, he says, you have missed the mark. You are trying to earn your way into the favor of the Lord. And he says, and that is simply impossible. No one can do that. That should have been evident. That was one of the purposes of the law, something we'll get to in a moment, to reveal our inability. And yet there were religious leaders, there were religious people in those days, just as there are now, who think, no, but I think, I can, I think I'm pretty good. 
like, I think I can, I think my good can, like, outweigh my bad, right? Like, I think I can do enough or say enough. I can, like, give enough. Paul's saying that that is not in line with the truth. You might be very zealous, right? You might be so committed to your works-based model of salvation. You might be so committed to think, I'm going to do the right thing and say the right thing, and I'm going to give of myself. Like, that's, wow, what zeal. But Paul says it's, it's simply not going to work. It's simply not in line with the truth. It's simply not real righteousness. So these people, these Israelites, they've sought to establish their own righteousness. And in doing so, they've ignored God's righteousness. They have failed to submit to God's righteousness. Meaning they have failed to, to acknowledge before the Lord that, hey, I can't do it. That's, that's the beginning point of, of every Christian spiritual life. Right? The point that many of us have come to at some point. It's that moment where we have to kill the hope that we have in ourselves, in our ability, in our accomplishments. It's that moment where we just come before the Lord and we say, you know what? Yeah, I admit it. I can't do it. I can't be perfect. I can't be holy. I can't, I can't follow everything all the time. I can't always do what's right. And in doing so, what we're doing is we're, we're submitting to God's Righteousness. We're saying, God, your righteousness is greater than my own. Paul says, Israel has failed to do that. He says, and this is so misguided, it's so tragic because, verse 4, he says that Christ is the end of the law, with the result that there is righteousness for everyone who believes. He says, for Moses writes about the righteousness that is by the law, and he quotes from Leviticus. He says that the one who does these things will live by them. All right, Paul, this Greek term for the end of the law is very intentional. It's, it's this term that, that means literally end, but it could be either the end, meaning the, the, the ceasing of something, right, the termination, or it can be the end as in the goal, right, like the purpose. And here, Paul's using some grammar magic to put, you basically use it in both ways. He's saying Christ was, is in fact, Jesus Christ himself said, hey, I have come and I have fulfilled the law. It's over. Paul in Galatians talks about how we are no longer under the Mosaic law, but we are under the law of Christ, the law of grace. That's what we live by. So in some ways, or in that sense, Jesus is the end of the law. We are no longer under the Mosaic law. Now, in the law of Christ, there are elements from the Mosaic law that Jesus continued, right? He says, you've heard it said, don't commit adultery. He says, but I tell you that even if you think lustfully after another person in your heart, it's the same as adultery, right? Jesus says, I'm continuing that command. In fact, I'm, I'm making it a little bit even more difficult. I'm helping you see what's really intended by that law. It's not just about your behavior. It's about your belief. It's about where your heart is. So Paul says, Jesus is the end of of that Mosaic law, but he's also the point of it, right? We're told repeatedly in scripture that the purpose of the law was to essentially point us towards Christ. Jesus says this about himself in Matthew. He says, all of this law, all of these prophets, it's meant to point you towards me. So not only is he the end of the law, the cessation of it, but he says, I am also the culmination. I am the purpose, the point, 
The end goal of the law is that you would see me and you would believe that you would understand that you can, in fact, not earn salvation. And no one ever could, right? Even as Paul quotes from Moses in Leviticus, what Moses is describing here is that he gives these commands to Israel and it's intended for Israel to follow these commands so that they can continue to enjoy the blessing of God in the promised land. Okay, that's the context. But the one who does these things will live by them. They will continue to live in the land of blessing. So yes, there is still an element that as we obey the Lord, we can greater enjoy, better enjoy his favor and his blessing. We can enjoy his promises as we obey, as we stay in line with his will. But we were never saved. Salvation was never brought through works. We're told that even Abraham, right? Abraham, we read this earlier in Romans, that when Abraham believed in the promises of God, that was credited to him as righteousness, right? It's the belief, it's the faith that God can do what we could never do, that God can provide what we could never create. So Paul says we need to recognize, right? Israel has missed the truth that Christ is the end of the law, that it is salvation by grace through faith, not by works, so that no one has room to boast. It says, but verse six, it says, but the righteousness that is by faith says, do not say in your heart who will ascend into heaven, that is to bring Christ down, or who will descend into the abyss, that is to bring Christ up from the dead. Okay, he's quoting here from Deuteronomy, Deuteronomy 30, where Moses is giving the law to the people of Israel, and he says, look, you've, you maybe have this desire of like, okay, we gotta do all these things in order to like bring the word of God to us. So, so we're thinking like, we're gonna be so great, we'll, we'll go into heaven and bring the word down, or we're gonna descend into the abyss, and we're gonna bring the word up. Paul says, that, that's not necessary. He says, you don't need to say in your heart that I'm gonna be so great that I'm gonna go into heaven or I'm gonna be so great, I'm gonna bring the word of God up from the depths. He says, Christ has already come down, right? Christ has already risen. But instead, what does it say? Verse eight, the word is near you in your mouth and in your heart. That is the word of faith that we preach. Again, this is Deuteronomy 30. Paul is saying, he's quoting from Moses who's speaking about how we are in fact needing, we are recipients of God's grace. That God's word comes to us, not because we've earned it, not because we chased it down, not because we brought it up, but instead God has revealed himself to us by his grace. This is the, the beginnings, right? The, the first kind of almost hints of that new covenant that Trey just talked about over the Lord's Supper, that new covenant in Christ's blood, that God would reach into the core of who we are, into our innermost being, and he would transform our hearts. That he will always be our God, that we will always be, always be his people. Not because we earned it, not because we accomplished it, but because God gave it. Paul says, this is the word of faith that we preach. That we are recipients of the grace of God. Right? And he, he culminates it in this really famous statement from Romans chapter 10, starting in verse nine. It says, because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Right? I, I learned this as a song when I was a kid growing up. 
that if you confess with your mouth, Jesus is... Okay, and it keeps going. I won't, but it does. This is the simple truth of our gospel that Paul's going to lay out in verses 9 and 10. It says, the God has not called us to this, this work that will somehow save us. He says, instead, if you confess with your mouth, if you believe in your heart, then you will be saved. Right? And Paul's using this, this mouth and heart terminology, and, and some people, some scholars want to really read into that and dig into that. Personally, my conviction is that, and, and many scholars' conviction is that when Paul is talking about this distinction, it feels almost like a distinction that he's making between mouth and heart. And what does that mean? Many scholars, myself, I'm not a scholar, but I'm with them in that I think we would say, or I would say, yeah, I, I think Paul's he's simply carrying forward the language of Moses, right? So if Moses had said that, you know, he, he, Moses just talked about it, it's the word of God is in your mouth, in your heart. If Moses said the word of God is in your knee and your elbow, I think Paul would continue with knee and elbow here. He's simply continuing with this language. And he's essentially saying almost the same thing. He says, if you're confessing with your mouth, right? But that does, it brings a bit of a profession, right? I'm, I'm confessing, I'm, I'm, I'm saying something, I'm stating something. If you believe that Jesus is Lord, which was significant because the people in Rome, uh, they were surrounded all day, every day by the statement that you, you were a good Roman citizen because you would say, Caesar is Lord, Caesar is Lord, Caesar is Lord. Like you could believe in your own little gods, but also Caesar is Lord. So Paul's saying, no, you, we have, we've attached ourselves to a different God, to a different savior. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, if you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you'll be saved. Verse 10, for it's with your heart that one believes and thus has righteousness. And with the mouth, one confesses and thus has salvation. Now, again, we might be tempted to think, okay, is there a big difference between like belief and confession, heart, mouth? Like what? And I think it's resolved largely by Paul's very next verse or his very next statement. In verse 12, sorry, in 11, he says, for the scripture says that everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. He's quoting from Isaiah. He says, this is the truth. This is the beauty of our gospel, that anyone who believes in the name of Jesus Christ is saved. That's the point. That's the point that he's making. And so Paul is going to then extrapolate, right? He's going to kind of give the implications of this. He says, if it's true that anyone who believes in him will not be put to shame, therefore there is now no distinction between the Jew and the Greek. For the same Lord is Lord of all who richly blesses all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Paul says, this is the truth. This is our gospel. It's not a mission that we, we have to accomplish. It's not works that we do to achieve our standing before the Lord, right? Our works will never, ever, ever save us. Our works will not save. There's nothing we can do to reach the perfection that God requires for those that want to know him, that want to be with him for eternity. He says, you can't do it. Paul says this in Romans 3, 3.23, right? We've, we've all sinned. We've all fallen short of the glory of God. Our works will not save us. There is nothing I can do We've got the Super Bowl coming up, or sorry, the big game coming up in a week. There is nothing I can do ever in my life to play in the Super Bowl. Like, it's never going to happen. There's, at this point in my life, I, there is nothing I can do 
No work will ever lead me to that Super Bowl to perform. Unless maybe halftime, we'll see. You know, like, but <laughs> there is probably nothing I can do to ever put me on that field. In the same way, Paul says, there's nothing we can do. Our, our, our seeking after our own, establishing our own righteousness, it doesn't work. Our works will not save us. And yet there's a part of us that wants to look inward or look outward for salvation. There's a part of us that thinks maybe, maybe I can just like do enough or maybe I can like be great enough. And maybe it's not even we're always thinking about eternal salvation, but we think about saving ourselves from this or that, from this enemy or that enemy, from this problem, this trouble. We think, you know, you know I, can, I got this, like I can do this. We look inward or maybe we look outward. Maybe we put our hope in, in these other things. We think, gosh, if I can just, if I can just get enough you know, if I can get that number in my bank account high enough, if I can diversify my investments well enough, if I, can, if I can get enough prestige, if I can get enough renown, if I can get my kids to behave a certain way, if I can get this certain GPA, if I can accomplish these things, if I can get these kinds of friends and that kind of lifestyle by that kind of lake house and this type of boat, like if I can just do all these things, then I will, in fact, be fulfilled. Ah, oh, because now I have a boat. It sounds almost ridiculous, and yet it's a trap that our hearts and minds fall into all the time. It's something I fall into all the time. We live in such a way that we think, no, I'm, I'm really hoping ooh, that, that this health issue will be resolved. I'm really hoping that, that these people will behave in this way, that this person will treat me this way, that people will see me in that way. Man, we get so, we're so hopeful. We're so invested. And what Paul is telling us, what the Lord has told us in the scripture time and again, is that our hope in ourselves, our hope in these things, it's not going to fulfill. It's not going to satisfy. That the hope in these things, that hope needs to die. That hope needs to die. In prestige, renown, friend groups, lifestyle, bank account, that hope needs to die so that I can hope wholly, entirely in the true Savior who lives. And that's the gospel. That we confess to the Lord, I can't do it. Money's not going to do it. Prestige isn't going to do it. Reputation isn't going to do it. Got these things. that They might be important in that the Lord has given you roles and responsibilities to steward. But none of these things will save. None of these things will satisfy. None of these things carry into eternity. So we come to the Lord and we confess. We say, God... I need you, right? My hope in these false, temporary, pragmatic saviors, God, that hope is gonna die so that I can hope entirely in the one true savior who lives. We look upward for salvation. I've said it before, I'll say it again, right? As we hope, so often our hope gets put up in the quality of these circumstances, but our hope, it, it can never rest. It will never be reliable if our hope is in the quality of our circumstance. Our hope has to be in the character of our creator, the character of our God. 
He is the one that will never disappoint. He is the one that will always satisfy. So even when trouble strikes, even when health issues get worse, even when relationships fall apart, even when jobs are lost and children are wayward, we say, the Lord, you're my hope. You're my salvation. I'm going to trust you. God says, that's what I'm calling you to. Not these little empires that you can build for yourself, but instead to trust in my kingdom that will come. (laughs) My will that will be done on earth just as it is in heaven. And it's because of this stark reality, this incredible hope and truth that we are given then, Paul lays out, what is our response? In light of those who have rejected the gospel, what is our response as those who have received it? He says in verse 14, how are they, right? So he says that anyone who calls on the name of the Lord might be saved. So he continues that into verse 14. He says, how are they to call on one that they've not believed in? And how are they to believe in one they've not heard of? And how are they to hear without someone preaching to them? Right? Paul begins to lay out essentially this process of evangelism. He's going backwards. He says, how are they going to call if they haven't believed? How are they going to believe if they haven't heard? How are they going to hear if it wasn't preached? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? For as it is written, how timely is the arrival of those who proclaim the good news. But not all have obeyed the good news, for Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed our report? Paul lays out this process. He says, look, we need to send. We need to send people to preach, to proclaim the good news. And they're preaching so that people can know. They can know who Jesus is. And when they know who he is, then they can believe that he is who he said he is. They can believe that he is, in fact, Lord. And when they believe, that's when they call on the name of the Lord. That's when they call on God for salvation. So this is the process. And yet we know, we, we understand that even as this news is preached, even as it is proclaimed, there are some who will not obey it. How do we obey the good news? Belief. How do you obey the gospel? Belief. That is the work of obedience in in the face of the gospel message of Jesus Christ. Believe. For Isaiah says, right, Paul's using another context. Isaiah said, Lord, who believed our report? They didn't obey the report that we gave them. They didn't believe it. Consequently, verse 17, he sums this up. He says, faith comes from what is heard, and what is heard comes through the preached word of Christ. Here's the reality, is that for those of us that have put our faith in Jesus Christ, we are now a part of God's work, and his work is not completed. It's not. His work is ongoing. God's work is continually happening in our lives, around our lives. It is not yet complete. It will be completed, right? We read that book this last year, Revelation. We know that the work of the Lord will be completed one day. Trey reminded us about it during the Lord's Supper, that that every knee will bow, that every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord. That day will come, but that day is not today, as far as I know. I mean, we'll see. (laughs) Don't quote me. (laughs) God's work is not yet completed. It's like laundry. It's never done. Sometimes I sit as I'm thinking about how am I going to illustrate this point or prove this point? Sometimes it takes me a while. I'm like sitting there and I'm just thinking, staring out my window. 
this one came immediately. I thought, what is a work that's never done? Laundry. Yeah, that's it. I'm in a family of five. We got three little kids. We could do laundry all day, every day, and still be behind. Like, we, it, it's amazing. I don't even know where these clothes are coming from. But you know, if you've raised a family, you're like, gosh, yeah. And I remember in college, I was like, oh, man, laundry's such a drag, right? Like, every two weeks, I got to do, like, one whole load, right? It never involves my towel or my sheets because I'm disgusting. <laughs> but now, now I'm like, oh, no. This work will never be completed. All right, so the good news is that God says, you know, this, this work will be completed one day. So there is actually hope of, of fulfillment. The laundry will be done. The washer and dryer will be done. They'll be burned up in a fire. He says, but in the meantime, as we await that day, he says, I I have a work. I have a mission. I have a purpose for you to be a part of. I want you to go. I want you to preach. I want you to send. I want you to share. I want you to proclaim. And yet what's difficult is that so often we grow tired or we grow timid when it comes to sharing our faith with proclaiming the good news of Jesus Christ. Maybe we're tired because we've said it over and over again and it's, it's not received. Or maybe we're timid. We're afraid to bring it out. We're afraid to put it out there because we're worried about how they'll view us or how the relationship's gonna continue. Maybe we don't know enough. Maybe we don't have the right words to say. But Paul tells Timothy that he's been given a spirit, not of fear and timidity, but a spirit of boldness, of courage, of strength, The Lord says, I have a mission that every single one of you should be a part of. Jesus says, I have this great commission that you would go and make disciples of all people. Every nation. Every single one of us are invited into this mission. And God says, I I will sustain you. I will strengthen you. I'll give you the words to say. You can trust in my word because, yeah, we're, we're called to water. We're called to plant But ultimately, we're told in Corinthians that we can trust that God's the one who causes the growth. And so our role is just to be faithful. The fruitfulness is up to the Lord. Faithfulness is on us. Because I want you to be faithful and you can trust me with the fruit. So even as we grow tired, even as we might be tempted to to, to pull back, we have to remember that eternity is always worth the effort. God says that this is the end point. This is what you're seeking. This is what you're thinking of. Right? This is where you're headed. This temporary struggle. Paul says that these, these temporary struggles and difficulties, he says, it's, it's nothing compared to the glories of eternity that await us. And so we persevere. We have hope. We rely on the Lord for our strength. And then we trust that the Lord has promised the end result. He says this starting in verse 18. He says, but I ask, Okay, and again, remember, this is all originally in the context of Israel. So he's speaking about Israel here. He says, have I asked, have the Israelites, have they not heard? Right, he laid out that general principle of how people hear, believe, call on the Lord. He says, has, is, have they not heard? Is that their excuse? No. Right, they, they have. Yeah, they, they have heard. In fact, their voice has gone out to all the earth, their words to the ends of the world. Paul says, there is, Israel has no excuse. They cannot claim ignorance before the Lord. They, they did not reject Jesus out of ignorance. It, it is instead 
an act of defiance. It's rebellion. So he says in Romans 1, right? The problem with humanity is not ignorance. It says, for even in the world itself, even in just creation, it says all of creation points to these incommunicable abilities and, and attributes of the Lord. It says the glory of the Lord is revealed in creation. The wrath of the Lord is now poured out because we've exchanged the truth for a lie. It says Israel's heard. They've just ignored. But I ask again, verse 19, didn't Israel understand? So maybe they heard it, but it just, it just didn't click for them. Maybe it wasn't explained enough. Again, he goes back to history. He says, Moses says that I will make you jealous by those who are not a nation. With a senseless nation, I will provoke you to anger. God's telling Israel, he says, I'm, I'm gonna work through these nations around you because you've rejected me, because you heard my word and you've chosen to ignore it. He quotes from Moses. Now Paul quotes from Isaiah in verse 20. Isaiah is even bold enough to say that I, the Lord, was found by those who did not seek me. I, the Lord, became well known to those who did not ask for me. God says, I, I've been at this work. It's this work of salvation has, has been for all people, not just Israel. Or there's a special work for Israel that God is still in the midst of that we're going to get to next week in chapter 11. But here Paul's saying, look, it has been revealed to them across all time, across all generations, that the Lord, even in his promise to Abraham to give him descendants, to give him this land, he says, I'm going to, through you, I'm going to bring a blessing to all of the world. Right? Moses and Isaiah testify to this. That God says, I, I'm going to bring this good news. I'm going to bring salvation to everyone. I'm going to be found by those who weren't even seeking me. I'm going to become well known to those that didn't even ask for me. I'm just going to show up because I love them too much to leave them where they are. And so Paul concludes coming back to Israel. And he says that about Israel, he says, Isaiah says, all day long, I held out my hands, right? The Lord says, all day long, I, the Lord, have held out my hands to this disobedient and stubborn people. Now, Paul's going to kind of expound on this in chapter 11, how the Lord still has a place for Israel. He still has a plan for Israel. And yet, in this day, right here, right now, the Lord says, I'm, I'm still just, I'm holding out my hands. All day long, I hold out my hands. And this is the incredible reminder that we need. This is what we're kind of closing on, is this truth that God's grace is not depleted, right? His work is not completed. His grace is not, will never be depleted. That he stands with arms wide open. That he's holding out this offer of salvation to all who believe. Jesus Christ came not to condemn the world, not to, not to rub our noses in our filth and our shame. He came to save the world. He came that all might call on his name, that all might believe, that all might come to faith. Receive the grace of God. This is our hope. This is our prayer. That the Lord's grace would be not only received by us, right? We talked about this a few weeks ago. That we would not only receive the grace of God, but that we would reflect the grace of God to the world around us. So even as we close this morning, before we sing a final song, I, my hope is that we will take some time to pray that the Lord's grace would be reflected through us, that, God's, that the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ would be heard because of the way that we live, because of the way that we speak. We can be praying that God would change the hearts and minds of people around us. And that not only would God 
perform that work, but that, that as God is, is bringing others to faith, that we would be seeking opportunities to be a part of that mission. Right? That we would pray that God would give us opportunities to share our faith. So before we sing this song, let's, let's pray to the Lord. Let's ask him, God, give us eyes to see the work that you have before us. Lord, we thank you that you have revealed yourself to us. God, I thank you for the gift of salvation that I have received, Lord, through my faith in Jesus Christ. God, I confess that I, I did not earn this. God, I do not deserve this. And yet, God, I desperately needed it. And Lord, we pray that there are some probably here right now, some of us in this room, Lord, who, who have not yet trusted in Jesus Christ, who have not, in fact, confessed that their own work, their own righteousness will not, will not fulfill will not satisfy, will not save. And so, Lord, we pray for a moment here just for those of us in this room, Lord, that, that need to, to fall before you, God, to confess their need. And if you have put your faith in Jesus Christ, I'd ask you, join me in praying right now for the people here that God would move in their hearts and minds with his spirit and call them to faith. Lord, we, we confess that we live in a world, Lord, that is full of distractions and, and other concerns and cares and worries. And, and Lord, while we seek to live with excellence in the midst of all that, Lord, we, we pray that our eyes would never lose sight of your goal, Lord, of your work, of your mission, that your gospel would go forth. Lord, that we would send those to preach so that people can hear, that they can believe, that they can call on your name. So if you would, take this moment now and, and ask the Lord, God, work in the heart of, of this person or that person. Maybe it's someone you prayed with or you prayed for with a partner just recently here at Southwood. Maybe it's someone else in your family, in your workplace, wherever. But pray, God, I pray that you would bring them to salvation. Finally, let's ask the Lord for opportunities to be a part of his work, this mission that he's given to every single one of us, that God would start conversations, that we would have eyes to see the need for hope and life and peace with God through Jesus Christ. We would see the opportunity to share that with people in our midst, in our classroom, our workplace, our families, our neighbors, ask him for that.
So Lord, we come to you and we confess our need for your power and strength. God, we confess our need for your wisdom and direction. Lord, we know that, that this work, God, it is a mighty work that you don't need to involve us in, and yet, God, you graciously invite us into it. And so, Lord, we thank you for the opportunity that our lives would have an impact, not just on today or tomorrow, but on all eternity. And Lord, we pray that as we go out into this week, into this world, Lord, into our different roles and responsibilities, that God, we would carry with us this burden, God, this heart that is broken for the lost, for those who are far from you. God, let that be what motivates us to speak and live and think differently. God, in line with your will, in line with your purpose and your desire. God, let us go forth, not with our message, but God, with your message of salvation, by grace, through faith in Jesus Christ. So Lord, as we sing this final song, Lord, we pray that it would just be a a glorious blessing to your name. That God, we would be confessing to you that we cannot do it, that we are insufficient, we are unable. And yet God, you are perfect and you are mighty and you are strong and you are wise and you are Lord. Lord, that is the cry of our hearts. God, use this time. Let it be a blessing to you. Lord, we pray these things in your name, amen.